Thank you for joining IAB There. Hi, everybody. Welcome to IAB There. I'm Brad Behrens, IAB's Editor-in-Chief, uh, IAB There. This is our regular program in which we connect the digital advertising ecosystem. Our topic for today is COVID's impact on e-commerce and consumer shopping behavior. We have two very special guests with us today. We have Brian Wiener, the CEO of Profitero, and then in our second segment, we'll be joined by Surabi Pokrial. She is the Global Director of E-Commerce Acceleration for Johnson & Johnson. Let's bring Brian Wiener onto the stream first thing, please, um, and we'll get going. Brian Wiener, welcome to IB There. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great to see you again, Brad. So you have a storied history in the industry, and I'd like to ask you to kind of weave for us the story of, of why you're at Profitero. Um, I first became aware of you when you were at 360i, and my memory from an earlier conversation is that 360i sort of existed to, to make search make sense for brands and later to make social make sense for brands. So what's the, what's the through line here with what you're doing at Profitero? So you, first of all, you have a good memory. Um, and, you know, we started getting going in my company in 2004 and, and what we, our vision was around making search work for brands and I'll kind of relate it back to today, but the time we saw it didn't take a genius to realize that Google search was taking off. But yet when you looked at what was happening in the marketing ecosystem and infrastructure, nothing really, the evolution was not matching consumer behavior. And so my partner and I at the time saw a big opportunity to build a tech platform and maybe some tech services around it. And so we ended up buying a small company and launching a, a tech platform that was helping people do bid management on search. What we realized pretty quickly is the brands didn't have the people to manage it. So we started launching more and more services. That became 360i and it was in search. This is 2004, 2005. Similarly in 2006, we saw the rise of social and I had been at a social media company called theglobe.com in the 90s, which is one of the early ones. So um, I was pretty familiar with it and I saw the same pattern happening. And I actually hired Sarah Hofstetter who we used to work together previously to start a blog PR practice. And part of it was to do social media outreach via blogs, Facebook and Twitter weren't there at the time. Um, and the other part of it was to help SEO rankings because blogs were a huge part of that. And that led to a Facebook practice and Twitter and a social media and 360i actually blossomed out of, we built a full service media agency out of search and a full service strategy and creative agency out of social and brought those all together. And so that was a hugely successful effort. We eventually ended up selling the Dentsu and, and staying on for quite some time. If you fast forward to now 2020, Sarah and I were working with some private equity firms looking at businesses to potentially go into. And, and we looked at e-commerce and we saw the exact same things happening in e-commerce that we happened in search and social. Now, this is, this is pre-COVID. We were looking at this late 2019. And it was obvious e-commerce was growing. But if you looked at how brands were adapting to it, it was still pretty slow. And so we saw a big opportunity there. My memory of one of the many career highlights for 360i was um, during the Super Bowl when in real time, uh, your team created the You Can Dunk in the Dark for Mondelez and the Oreo, uh, which was quite celebrated at the time. So uh, we will, uh, we'll be waiting for that, that Super Bowl moment from Profitero and bring you back at the time that that happened. 
Um, let's talk about uh, what you're seeing out there. We have uh, we launched this particular show in, in March, and although it's not the COVID show because that would be a bummer, uh, we are always talking about this the massive acceleration that seems to be happening that with COVID, a lot of behaviors and trends that were seedlings, uh, you know, before we all sort of got shut and shut in our homes uh, back in March, have had accelerated growth, like, like in a cartoon. So what are you seeing in terms of how consumer behavior is changing uh, on the e-commerce side? Like what's the high level? Sure. Um, well, overall, aside from all of our lives being chaotic, the business environment is as chaotic as, as it's ever been. And you named Oreo as one of our you know, more famous and long lasting clients. Another one was HBO. And I always like to qu uh, quote Lord Bayless from Game of Thrones, where he said, chaos is a ladder. And so there is a lot of chaos out there. And it, it's driven by what we're all happening, what we're all seeing in our own lives, which is online shopping as a way of life and existence, because we have to, it's sort of survival. And I'd say in terms of things that are probably most notable has been in the grocery space. I mean, hmm. customers have tripled this year, tripled. And at one point we're like, okay, this is gonna be a blip, but this is, you know, now that we're on month nine, eight, nine of this, and by the time we're done, it's fairly, it's fairly easy to predict that this is gonna become a permanent behavior habit. Not that stores are going to want to go away completely, but it's probably far more likely to be closer to where we are today in terms of shopping behavior than where we were before. And the other thing is it brought very different consumers, especially older consumers who weren't quite comfortable with online shopping and in particular grocery. Um, and so I think a recent survey I saw was that 81% of Americans uh, who've been buying groceries intend to keep doing so permanently. So buying groceries online. Yeah. Buying groceries I, online. Sure. Um, and this so, is a behavior that we've seen elsewhere in the world. Uh, you know, Korea, for example, there was that famous uh, Tesco uh, subway station where people could touch their phone to different, uh, different pictures of groceries and have them delivered uh, shortly thereafter. It's just uh, people in the United States have lagged behind uh, for some time. So you're, you're seeing, I think what I'm hearing is that you think that grocery, uh, online grocery delivery or delivery of groceries purchased online is going to be a stable behavior um, after we have a vaccine and we're, we're sort of, uh, I don't think we'll ever go back, uh, but when we're, our lives look a little bit more like they used to. What other behaviors do you think are going to be permanent or uh, what behaviors, shopping behaviors do you think are going to snap back to pre-pandemic uh, ways of being? Well, one, I, I want to draw a sharp distinction here between buying online and how you actually receive the goods. Because I think historically, it's sort of been synonymous. We envision we bought something online and a couple of days later, a package shows up from Amazon at our front door. What I would say is there's buying online is, going, is here to stay. But what we've seen is a huge surge in buying online and picking up in store mm -hmm. and also buying online and delivery. And so I think different parts of the country, different segments of consumers are going to are going to want different types of the way they receive the goods, but the purchasing, the going from browsing to actual the transaction happening online is something that is here to say and is gonna be here in, in increasing amounts. Uh, at the time of this episode of Ivy There's airing, we are just after our brand disruption summit where uh, buying online focus, buy online pickup and stories is one of many 
sort of hot topics of conversation. So we're talking about consumer behavior right now. Um, uh, let me just reiterate one question, because again, I, I, I think I interrupted you and I apologize. Um, what Do you have any sense of behaviors that will sort of snap back? Um, you know, I, for example, think that we, we've seen again and again that you know, the moment that it seems safe to, for people to go to a bar or a restaurant, uh, there's this pent up demand to, to be at, uh, you know, to be in those, those locations. Um, I'm wondering on the e-com side, if there's anything you think will snap back to, to earlier forms of behavior. I think, in, I think in terms of a restaurant for their own category, I, I, I firmly believe that we're all thrive human interaction. Um, so I think that that absolutely will come back. I think, but as there specifically as it relates to e-com, I think apparel is going to go back, not to what it was, but people want to try clothes on in much more ways than they would for, let's say, household goods. And Sarabi might have a different point of view on this, but I think I think it's very different. I don't think it's a great experience buying things at CVS or at Kroger. That's not something people thrive on. There are certain things you may want to go there for, like touching vegetables, picking out meat, but that doesn't mean you can't pre-purchase most of the things in your cart, have it delivered, have it picked up while you're there, um, and just focus on the things that you really want to touch and feel. And and so just to make make clear, you know, Profitero is in uh, is in the in the business of supporting all of that, not just sort of uh, typical Amazonian, say, e-com. Um, let's talk about your clients, which yeah. is there have been a bunch of changes across how brands are thinking about e-com. Uh, how are you seeing, and this, this will be a setup, um, when we bring Saravi on, my first question would be to ask her how wrong we are. Um, but you know, what are you seeing in terms of brands changing their organizations or their orientation uh, around e-com, which has always been, um, uh, you know, in a complicated place? Absolutely. And as you said, Sarabi is, is, is living and breathing it every day. I think one of the benefits that we have is we're working with a whole host of uh, CPGs. Our largest clients are Kraft Heinz and General Mills, Clorox is the world, L'Oreal, obviously J&J is a client. So we, we have the benefit of, of seeing and talking to clients and seeing different ways that they're handling these challenges. And I'd say different CPGs are at different stages on the e-commerce maturity curve. And so there is this range of e-commerce centrals, centralization as sort of a center of excellence versus decentralization. There is um, evangelization where you're trying to educate and convince people that this is the wave of the future. It's not a blip. I think that's much less hard, hard to do now than it was 10 months ago. Um, and then there is how do you actually transform the, uh, the organization? It's one thing when it is six or 7% of sales. It's another thing when it's 20% of sales and it's 50%, it's growing at 50%. How do you actually transform your organization to handle that? And if you look at the growth rates that a lot of the CPGs are reporting, you're talking about 40, 50, 60% increases in e-commerce. And that puts a strain on the entire system, including the supply chain. So to answer your question, um, every organization is different, but what I will say, it's the same thing I saw uh, in when digital really was taking off. Um, organizational and ecosystem dynamics are probably the biggest inhibitor on mass to CPGs being successful here. In order to be successful, you not only have to be aligned internally, but you have to have the right 
systems, you need to have the right service providers, um, you need to have the right technology to be able to make decisions and move at the speed of consumer. And that's much easier to talk about at a conference or on a podcast than it is to actually make happen in reality. And um, these are things that we are trying to help clear, clear out in our small way as part of the ecosystem by making analytics and data more visible, more transparent and more portable so that CPGs and, and their service providers can make decisions, informed decisions based on actionable insights. But that's only one piece of the puzzle. Let's let's take a moment to double click on this uh, to quote our CEO David Cohen, um, because I think what I neglected to do is is get the um, what is Profitero like what's what's the tweetable explanation of what your company does and uh, why you know for its clients uh, in the in the brand case and and how it's a bridge between uh, brands and, and online retailers. I got to do that in 140 characters. Thereabouts. <laughs> um, well, we're, we're a software analytics platform. And so, as I said, we're giving brands the data and insights across hundreds of retailers around the globe that helps them grow their e-commerce sales. So we help them answer questions like, are your products on, in stock at Walmart or an Amazon or a Tesco, as you mentioned? Um, what are pricing and promotions look like for your product as well as your competitor products? Um, is uh, how, how is it available to be delivered, shipped, in, in what time period? What are consumers saying about your product? Meaning what are your ratings and reviews? And then lastly, what's your market share? Is it going up or down? So these are the questions we're trying to help answer and so that brands can make more informed decisions. And before we bring Sarabi on, one last question, which is, uh, you know, we are seeing and hearing that uh, the holiday season is going to be you know, a barn buster for e-com because people don't want to go to the stores because retail shops are closing at an amazingly accelerated rate. So uh, how are your clients preparing for this? What are they doing? Uh, and then uh, since we're not naming any of them in this question, what ought they to be doing um, if, uh, if you had your druthers? Well, it, it, it's funny because what we've all learned is the most important thing is, is your product in stock. And that's something that we have taken for granted. Now, you know, for some of the people in, in your audience, they might not realize this, but when, when CPGs are selling on a Walmart or an Amazon, they're selling wholesale to these retailers. They don't have perfect visibility into a lot of, into a lot of these items about like, when is your, is your product available? And what we learned, we did some research on this. Um, when, when your product is non-stock, you obviously lose that sale. Um, but 75% of the people that we surveyed in, in this cheating consumer said that they would consider staying with the new brand that they chose for that particular purchase. Now, whether that actually holds up or not, uh, time will tell. We're going to track that. But I think that what all, all brands have realized is the first question is, my product needs to be available. The second question is, if it is available, how do I promote it and differentiate it um, against the competitors out there? I'd say the last point, you know, you asked about the gangbuster uh, e-commerce, and I'm sure it will be. I think one of the questions, though, that we're all wondering is, with Prime Day getting pulled into uh, happening in October and Walmart doing a similar type sales, how much of the holiday season got pulled forward? versus is that additive to the overall sales for the holiday season? 
And so I think we'll know that answer pretty soon because we've got the uh, Turkey Five coming up where you have, you know, fr the Friday through Cyber Monday, you know, Thanksgiving through Cyber Monday, and, and, and we'll know a lot more then. Well, uh, hopefully you'll come back and report back to us on what you've learned. I, I have to just say that uh, a thinker I admire a great deal is a man named Byron Sharp, who wrote a book called How Brands Grow, and the extraordinarily reductive uh, thesis of his book, uh, his thesis isn't reductive, my account is reductive, uh, is that in order for a brand to grow, people need to know about it and they need to be able to buy it. And so what you were just saying about consumers being willing to trial uh, alternatives because they can't get their favorite brand in the store because of COVID, um, those are likely to be lasting behaviors, uh, at least I believe they will be. Um, but let's bring Sarabi uh, Pokreal, Global Director of E-Commerce Acceleration for Johnson & Johnson into the stream. Hi, Sarabi, uh, welcome to I Be There. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me. Hi, Brian. So the, the first question, which I teased uh, a couple of minutes ago, is uh, tell us where we're wrong. Right? What are we? You're, what are we missing? Brian has the you know uh, agent kind of perspective across a lot of brands. I have the analyst perspective sitting in my chair. You're living and breathing this. Um, what what are you seeing about consumer behavior changing? About uh, uptake for your brands? Just what were you what were you reacting to as we were chatting? Um. I was head nodding a lot through that you know, black screen. So let me say I aligned to a lot of conversations that I heard, but I will say that you know, we are in a moment when you talk of habits that will not go back to the old normal. First of all, let me say like normal in my mind is only a setting on the dishwasher or dryer, right? It, it's, it's just, that's the only way where normal is. Everything else has changed for good. So having said that, you know, Brian, when you were mentioning going back to the store for those high touch, high consideration kind of items, be it your meat or produce and things like that, I feel in apparel and other sectors, especially in luxury goods, there will be a value to go to the store for experience, but not the product. We have seen a lot of case studies coming out with Canada Goose is shutting down all its store, just putting one or two of those parkas, just a couple of colors where the intention is not for the person to come in, try out and buy it in the store, but the intention is to experience the assortment and see that as a differentiator. I think that is the kind of new retail that might take up after, you know, after the pandemic as a new behavior, because for low consideration items, for folks who have started doing grocery online and the 80% people brand that you were mentioning, especially the older demographic who at one point could not discriminate between Instacart and Instagram, and now that they are able to discriminate, they are here to stick for the most part. Um, I do want to take a quick sidebar and say what I should have said as you were coming in, which is that uh, you're not speaking uh, on behalf of Johnson & Johnson today, Sarabi. You're sharing your expertise as a longtime practitioner, um, just to make sure that uh, the, uh, the audience is clear about that. Um, sure. So forgive me for not having said that at first. Um, so how, what are the big opportunities that you see, Sarabi? And then Brian, please feel free to, to jump in. Uh, sort of unexploited opportunities for e-com on the brand side? I would say when e-commerce started or when the topic started bring, coming up 20, 30 years back, it was electronic commerce. In my mind, it is still electronic commerce, but it's also everywhere commerce, right? What you do digitally influences your offline sales uh, to a large extent and vice versa, right? I think brands and companies are not coming up to the fact that it is no longer the, the seemingly channel conflict that executives thought over the years. 
there is actually not a conflict. The only conflict that you have is whether your brand is bought or the competitor brand is bought. It's not about which channel you are selling. So I'll say it's it's become very much channel agnostic. In my view, one of the big opportunities is in the media spend. We do a ton of analysis. Big companies have you know deep pockets where media is spent both on the retailer platform and outside retailer platform. But are brands truly monitoring the retailer and ex-retailer media platform almost like they would monitor their stock portfolio and continually tweaking it? You know, how much do I spend in equity? How much do I invest in bonds? How much do I put in gold? and then optimizing it. I don't think that kind of rigor exists in many companies today. And there's a big opportunity to do that because your media optimization, both within the retailer platform and ex-retailer is going to have a big impact to your e-commerce top line. Uh, Brian, anything to add on that? Well, first of all, I just had a flashback to, I remember in like 15 years ago when we were trying to hire people and all the people in the media agencies were used to negotiating over lunch and you realize that you need to actually go find math majors instead of lit majors to actually be able to handle performance marketing. And so I totally agree with, with Sarabi. In fact, one of the things that we see as a big opportunity in working with our clients is connecting product analytics with media analytics. Hmm. So we don't actually buy the media, but what we found is people who are buying the retail media don't always have the product analytics at their fingertips. Meaning, is the product actually in stock? Is it converting well? And what kind of traffic is it getting? These are very simple questions that are not generally available. We have that data. The people who have fingers on keyboards making the media buying decisions don't. And so what we decided to do is we created this open ecosystem where we partnered with Kenshu and PacView, which are two of the larger tech platforms in the retail space, and every agency holding company making Profitero available to them on behalf of our clients so that the people who are actually making the decisions, as Robbie said, to connect that media, have this information because it's, it's just so critical. I think the biggest organizational element that I see in terms of an opportunity is this is connecting sales and marketing together in a way that just hasn't historically happened at CPGs. And, and media is that connective tissue, or at least needs to be. And Sarabi, do you want to follow up on that? Because I, I think you're, you know, you're running a team that's that's dependent on this sort of data, or at least potentially could be. I cannot agree more to that part. I I, I put the analogy, you know, sales and marketing teams traditionally are like train tracks going parallelly in the same direction, but not always, you know, hand in glove with each other. And that's the big opportunity for a lot of companies that the commerce part of e-commerce is the sales part, but the electronic digital engagement is the marketing part. So unless you get both of these parties sitting on the same table, aligned and looking at the same opportunity with the same goals and incentivized for the same outcomes, you know, this may not happen as fast as, as desired. Digital transformation is not easy. Uh, and, and I'm curious if either of you could share you know, a couple of questions to ask or a couple of, of steps to take. Um, you know, how, for example, um, do you have to realign people's incentives in order to get them to work together appropriately, to get different departments to work together uh, so that you know, people will do, take advantage of the connection between uh, commerce data and media data? Is there, are there any like, first steps for people listening thinking, I don't know where to start? I'll just say in a very simplistic manner, and I don't think this is relevant to only digital, what gets measured gets delivered for the most part. 
right? When we start measuring the outcomes that we want to attain and start in incentivizing people for those outcomes, things start changing. So while there can be this big, hairy, audacious goal of saying, we want to undergo digital transformation, we want to be more agile, you can do n number of agile workshops and trainings, but the outcomes may not be dramatically different uh, till we start incentivizing people for saying, this year, X percent of your business has to be e-commerce or above. This year, Y percent of your media has to be digital, right? So those are just a couple of you know, my personal observations from my you know, career in, in the CPG sector. So Brian, what first steps that people listening might take? Well, Sarabi so has a lot more experience with it. I mean, I don't have any experience inside of a CPG, so I would definitely listen to her more on that front. Um, my, my, my viewpoint comes from working with CPGs, but also running companies. And what I've found is when you want to do something pretty transformational, which I've had to do with a bunch of the companies I'm running, is you have to lay out a vision, but then you got to get some small wins. And so trying to do two, you don't want to go elephant hunting on these types of things. If you get people working together on a particular project and they experience success, they'll want more of that. And so incentives are important. Measurement is critical, but I think ultimately you have to get sim simplify things so people actually understand how to move forward. I've always found if you give someone a blank piece of paper, they're paralyzed, but most people, if you give a template, they can actually get going. And I think this is a similar way. So if you talk about sales and marketing, it, it, get them some wins. The people who are buying the media, they want the data. You just got to make it easy for them. Fascinating. So let's um, let's make a distinction, which is um, we've been seeing uh, consumer behavior changing across a lot of uh, different vectors, including embracing direct-to-consumer models. And I know from conversations with other CPGs that you know, many CPGs are launching direct-to-consumer brands. So for for question to both of you, but Sarabi, you first, uh, please uh, talk about how you think about D 2 C differently than retail focused or retailer e-com. What, what's different about your approach or, or is there a difference? I would say the similarity first in D2C and the typical e-commerce that we speak is both are storefronts at the end of the day, right? Both are meant for inspiring, engaging with the consumer and hopefully having a transaction. So that's a similarity. I would say the difference is if I can be a little provocative, D2C should not be, uh, you shall build and they shall come. No, that that should that will not happen. And you know, sorry to bust your bubble. D2C is not a shiny object that you want to check off because you know some executive says everybody's doing D2C, let's do D2C, right? And two two years down the line, you realize your top line, you know, is not meeting meeting any bit of the kind of sales you're seeing on Amazon. And then you say, oh, but D2C is useless. No, it's not. D2C can be very effective if you have a decent value exchange with your consumer. Are you providing them a unique assortment that's not available anywhere else? Are you providing them a unique price point? Is there a certain loyalty component that they cannot get anywhere else, right? Define the unique opportunity that the consumer has by coming to your Mondelez site and making a you know, customized happy birthday brand you know, on your Toblerone or the three-pack native deodorant that you can only get from native and not from target, right? Find those unique things that you can connect with to your consumer. And then you have all the right to claim not just their sales, but their you know, uh, much regarded first party data and all the other good stuff, right? So I think D2C has a, has a moment. 
just today i was seeing the earnings of gopro and the stock went up 16% and much of it was attributed to d2c success like i would not have imagined that people want to buy you know gopro kind of expensive cameras on direct to consumer website but they apparently want to right and this is even pre the holiday season so there's a lot of potential you just need to find the sweet spot where you're actually doing a good value exchange with your consumer we we had melissa grady the cmo of cadillac on the show a while back i think that if people are willing to buy cars online and have them delivered then a camera uh, is a, is a slightly uh, shorter stretch um brian you have a lot to say about retail media um and I'm, one of the distinctions between d2c and sort of uh, other forms of ecom uh, seems to me to be that there's less opportunity for retail media for d2c but but again i just i want to have that as a, a tributary to the bigger question about the key distinctions in your mind between direct to consumer and um, more conventional e-commerce. Well, I think Sarabi hit the big one, which is people all of a sudden they're, they're saying, wow, I don't want to be beholden to Amazon or Walmart, or I want to have all this unique first party data, but that is a me centric way of looking at business, which is, this is what I want to get out of it. But as Sarabi said, the first question you have to say, answer is what is my value proposition that is going to entice a consumer to go out of their way to come to my website or my app and buy it because we've all Amazon's done an incredible job of making things really easy for us. And Walmart's trying to do the same thing. So I needed golf balls the other day and I just was literally walking to my car. I had the app and I just put, put Titleist in there and I bought it and it'll be in my house in, in, in a few days. What would Titleist.com have to do to get me to then go there and deal with that experience? What, what could they give me? I don't know the answer, but that's the first question I think that has to be answered before you think through any of those other elements, like how are you going to be successful? What's the, what's the platform? Things like Shopify have made it much easier, but there are a lot of other questions to answer, but the first one is what's the consumer value problem? Uh, those are two fantastic questions. Let me, let's move into asking each of you to put your, uh, your magic hat on and look at the crystal ball, because we know that uh, consumer behavior uh, dances with emerging technologies and, and, and shifts within them. And, and so we have a bunch of new technologies that are starting to bubble up. And the two that I'd like to bring up, uh, one is voice. We have, you, uh, Ryan, you just mentioned Amazon uh, and Amazon is way out in front with Alexa and voice shopping. And, and the other, I think that's very quite powerful is augmented reality which doesn't require glasses, but you know, we have Google Lens and uh, all sorts of other things. And so those are the two that I am uh, believing will be starting to dance with consumer shopping behavior very, very quickly. And I wanted to ask um, the two of you, first of all, are there other technologies that you're really keeping your eyes on? Uh, and if not, if you are thinking, Sarabi, about or already working with Amazon uh, around Alexa skills or the equivalent with Google Assistant, et cetera. So where do you think the, the bets, uh, the smart bets that brands and retailers should be making on technology for shopping should be? If I may go first, Brian, uh, I'll take a shot at it. I'll just say from a technology perspective, I would say technology is not the outcome. It's simply the enabler. Like what is the problem we are trying to solve? And while all of the technology, blockchain, AR, VR, this is so sexy and this is so jazzy and these are almost clickbait kind of things. If you peel the onion, 
the consumer doesn't care for the technology they might care for the coolness factor once or twice but you will lose them really fast just like the app world right everybody wanted to build an app but if you open your phone there are only four or five apps that you actually use right so so i'll humbly state it's not the technology having said that there is certain stickiness to some technologies like there are habit forming behaviors of asking alexa for news the word count the weather right and my calendar for the weekend stuff like that i'm not sure if commerce has attained that that level of you know uh, stickiness with alexa and google from a voice channel yet but i think there is potential especially as the tweens today who speak more to siri via voice than typing so as this demographic grows up to be the shoppers i think this commerce will become a reality then having said that my other perspective is which may not be as shiny i see it a lot in china and eastern you know uh, the eastern part of the world live streaming and social commerce social commerce today is 10% of china e-commerce overall we are nowhere near that number in the us and the western world but i think live streaming and doing that kind of social commerce shopping as 5g comes to life in the western world it will only accelerate in the next couple of years so that is an exciting area for me to watch whether you put it in the technology landscape or not you know that's your call but i feel that's one area where brands and you know Uh, other big manufacturers need to keep an eye on because people are not just buying products they want to buy the lifestyle the experience and what you come to play with it so that's something i want to keep an eye on Brian what about you well i think my so there's a couple different points one is uh my advice to brands because i think there's so much to do to catch up to existing consumer behavior is not to try and be a pioneer but rather be a fast mover I think consumer behavior is so hard to predict what's happening that rather than try to be at the bleeding edge, you should be in a position where as soon as it looks like it's going to take off, you're in a position to move quickly. Um the second thing is the biggest challenge that digital continues to uh create for brands versus the brick and mortar world is discovery. When you walk into a supermarket there's a lot of products visible on the shelf if you bargain your way on there you're there and you might buy an end cap you can do different things in digital it's endless supply of products but if you're not on the first page of desktop you're irrelevant and in mobile it might be if you're not on the first 3 or 4 listings you're irrelevant you then start adding things like voice search the interface how do you become discoverable there i remember we launched our amazon practice at 360i in 2016 and we were working on we were very early and we were working on the different kinds of skills and i remember we were we built a program to test different words and what would happen and if you would just ask for batteries guess which battery maker always came up amazon am yeah every time and so how are you going to come up in a world so i don't know the answer of whether or not how big voice search is going to be or augmented reality but i think the questions i'd be asking myself or be thinking is as it starts to take off how are we going to become discoverable for consumers in that medium and that's something that uh we need to continue to evolve and and think through because at the end of the day if you can't be discovered you won't be purchased Well, those are both fantastic answers. Let me ask you uh, one final crystal ball question, uh, which is: eventually, we will have a vaccine, or we will develop herd immunity. Um, Johnson and Johnson has been helping with that. Uh, thank you. Um, so let's just project forward uh, to sort of six months after we can put the masks away. Uh, and and how do you each think that the marketing world uh, will have changed? Uh, or if you don't like that question how do you hope that the marketing world will have changed like what 
coming out of this, what would you like to see when we are suddenly able to have wider range of movement in so many ways? Brian, how about we start with you this time and we'll let uh, we'll give Sarabi the last word. Sure. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, I think about both, not only from a marketing, but also from someone running a company. Um, and I hope that we will become much more purposeful in our human interactions. I think we used to be for years, I grew up, you know, and spent decades working. You, you just had patterns. You went to the office and that's what you did. And you went five days a week. And if you had other offices, you traveled to visit them on some cadence. And then when you had client meetings, I'd fly to Chicago for a singular meeting. And, and there's just lots of things. And I think we all need and miss the human interaction, but we need to be more purposeful for when we're getting together, what we're going to do and thrive on it. And I think the idea of going to places, but not actually collaborating is something that I hope will be less frequent. Conversely, I hope we, we have purposeful collaboration more because I can tell you it's very hard uh, with our clients, with our teams to build meaningful relationships over Zoom. So Zoom is amazing for certain things. If Sarabi and I need to get together for an hour, it probably doesn't make sense for me to drive from you know, Long Island and get, get together if we're going in different places or get on a plane for one hour. But to spend a half day really thinking through and getting on the whiteboard on where to take a business it's really hard to do it through a screen. So I'm really excited to getting back to seeing people live, but I think we're gonna to have to reinvent the way we work and the rein reinvent the way that we uh, interact with, with brands and clients and customers. So Robbie, what about you? Yep, yep, that's a valid one, Brian, especially right when you're, you're doing big workshops with whiteboarding and you know there are many technologies like Mural, but I still struggle to make 30 people meetings effective uh, over Zoom. So I'll totally agree on that. I'll also say, I hope, you know, to the second option, Brad, you gave on the questions, what I wish changes, not just in marketing, but in organizations, that I hope people remember this time as a remember when moment, just like we speak of recession, remember when, the dot-com remember then. So we are gonna talk of this time as remember when in the next couple of years. And, you know, hopefully things will be better and the vaccine will be there and, you know, things will go back to the dishwasher kind of normal. But having said that, I hope people realize and organizations realize we want to look up from our navel gazing habit by saying, oh, look how cool we are. We did this and we can do a new project and we'll be 5% more or 10% more. I hope this is the time they realize that in January we did scenario planning, which was really not relevant to us when we started facing COVID in March, right? So all the scenario planning was thrown down the shredder. So for, I think the single biggest competitive advantage for any company, any human being or any group would be how fast can you pivot from your predetermined outcomes or predetermined plans? I think speed trumps um, you know, perfection in this case, no, no pun intended. And companies and groups that are able to do that and go above and beyond navel gazing and think of the 10x of the possible, you know, think of the art of the possible without considering what they started with, they'll be successful. Or that's my personal opinion. You know, that's something I want to strive for myself and my group. Well, uh, thank you. Um, Brian Wiener, Sarabi Pokreal, uh, Profitero, Johnson & Johnson, it has been a great privilege to speak with both of you. Thank you so much for joining us on IAB There. And I hope we can have you both, uh, both back individually and collectively uh, sometime soon. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. IAB There is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Connor Healy, Joe Ons, John Ward, 
Twafika Mahinadin and Carrie Villanueva. I'm Brad Behrens, Editor-in-Chief here at the IAB. Thank you so much for watching. Bye-bye now. Thank you.